the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined in our master series for our third Preston Sturgis conversation by Zina Hitz, our poetic muse. Hello, Zina. How are you doing? <laughs> Quite all right. I'm uh, happy to be called anyone's poetic muse. That's a very high compliment. <laughs> well, you keep me going back to Preston Sturgis and I watch these movies again and I talk them over with people and we do these podcasts and it's a charmed life, I have to say. Yes, and yes. I wouldn't have done this without you. I need you. <laughs> well, I have to say this film was a bright spot in weeks that were quite difficult for me. So this is part of Sturgis's gift is these incredible, distracting, delightful, profound films. Yes, I think that's really the only serious thing I have to say today. People just go watch Preston Sturgis. You'll be happier for it and you might <laughs> glean some things. It'll be a much more enjoyable time than, you know, screaming at your TV or doom scrolling on Twitter. <laughs> If we get one good thing out of our technologies that you can easily find Preston Sturgis movies. Yes. It's a joy. <laughs> and we will try to persuade you that the Palm Beach story, our movie for today, is also a thoughtful investigation of America. An America where we chase after our dreams, where we want happiness, and we want a lot of stuff while we're still young to enjoy it. But of course, before we get to that, please, Zina, take us through the plot, and then we'll get to our conversation. So the Palm Beach story is about a married couple, Jerry and Tom Jeffers. At the opening of the film, they're living in a beautiful apartment in Manhattan. Tom Jeffers, who's Joel McRae, one of the Sturge's great stars, is an architect who's struggling. He, they're always broke. He's never bringing home enough money. He has this great idea for an airport that is suspended in the sky. He can't persuade anyone to fund it. So they don't have enough money, and Claudette Colbert, who plays Jerry Jeffers in this fabulous performance, her character is tired of struggling with cash, and she also feels that she can help her husband more by leaving him. So part of the great tension in the marriage is, on the one hand, Tom Jeffers can't make enough money. On the other hand, Jerry Jeffers has no trouble getting money. She's so attractive and so charming that people literally throw it at her. So one of the early scenes, their apartment's being showed by the landlord since they can't pay their rent. The prospective tenant is so charmed by Jerry that he gives her all the money they need for back rent. And now this is a tension for Tom. He can't deal with the fact that his wife uses her charms, her sexuality, in order to make money. So that's the core of their tension. She just resolves to leave him she takes a train to Palm Beach to get a divorce. She meets on the train J.D. Hackensacker III, one of the richest men in America, and he falls in love, and she determines that she'll marry Hackensacker in order to bail out her husband, whom she still loves. Hackensacker has a sister, the Princess Centimilia, <laughs> the Princess Hundred Millions. Tom, Jerry's husband, pursues her to Palm Beach. Princess falls in love with him. The heir is in love with her. The husband pretends to be the brother, and they have an irresolvable situation because the husband and wife are already married and love each other, and these millionaire heirs and heiresses are both in love with them. So in the last second, we have, it turns out they're each identical twins, and everyone gets to marry someone who they love, and that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> so the beginning and the end of the movie are all very preposterous and right. it's part of this scintillating wit of Preston Sturgis's. To start with, the names Tom and Jerry are of course not an accident. The cartoon Tom and Jerry, you know, the Hanna-Barbera success story that won all those Oscars for decades, 
It just been created in 1940, so it was brand new, and people could appreciate the joke. And it says something about the story that he is always pursuing, and she's always outsmarting. But in a certain way, they love each other and they go together. Right. And it's all done in the element of comedy. You know, bad things happen; they don't have much of an effect. All the blows are softened. In a sense, it's not an usual kind of movie. But on the other hand, very reassuring. Nothing very bad is going to happen. Right. And so that's the tone of the movie. It's about a 90-minute movie, and it's one farce after another. They come so many and so fast. They just sweep you off your feet in the way I guess stand-up comedians do. You don't even need to love every gag or every joke because the accumulation ends up being like a torrent, and you're just swept. It's also an incredibly well-observed story. You see all sorts of things about who we are that aren't pressed, but they're there. All sorts of throwaway funny lines that turn out to be very smart if you think about it. And throughout, you see this double concern that on the one hand, this is America. We all need money. You can't live without money. And the other thing is this beautiful image is like at the end, our protagonists are doubled up through the magic of cinema because they're all <laughs> images. It's all made up. And so the money and the images somehow define who we are. We see, for example, from the beginning that there's a double of Claudette Colbert that's locked in this mysterious closet. And then we should mention the opening scene. The titles are what's so startling about this movie. It's this beautiful sequence of titles that tells a marriage story. They get married in the first two minutes of the movies. What it would take Shakespeare or Jane Austen an entire play or novel. Preston Searches gets done in two minutes. They get married in this hilarious montage that's cut to the William Tell overture by Rossini, <laughs> and now and then you have interspersed the bridal chorus from Lohengrin, or at other moments the wedding march of Mendelssohn, because of course those are the two pieces that everybody plays at weddings, and other allusions to classical music in the score. Some Tchaikovsky, Mendelssohn comes up again at the end. So there are all these lovely jokes, even at the musical level. And though they get married in the opening titles, you're stuck with this question: They lived happily ever after, or did they? And it turns out that within five years of their marriage, their dreams weren't fulfilled. He still has all these fantasies about building an airport above every American major city in steel meshes that are strong enough to hold a plane on takeoff or landing, but also are not going to be a danger to anybody, and they won't even block out the light. He explains. <laughs> so you see, this guy who is an engineer and a visionary is also a man who lives by images and fantasies of the future. He can imagine this future transforming America. But he's hungry, meanwhile, and his wife has her own fantasies. Her images of the beautiful are not visions of transforming America; they are visions of beautiful dresses and luxurious living, like you might see in a Preston Sturges comedy, for example. <laughs> right. And so we can suspect from the beginning that Sturges's sympathy is more to the wife than to the husband. <laughs> well, I I think because、uh, we talked about the Lady Eve last time. It seems natural to think a bit about how the same question is raised in a way about the relationship between money and love, on the one hand, and then also there's evidently, it seems to me, for both of the main characters, a kind of educational process that they undergo. Jerry somehow imagines that money is all she cares about, money is all she needs. And that her love for her husband will be satisfied if she helps him build his dream. She discovers over the course of the film, not least in one of the the most, I, I suppose Sturges often has these long 
slapstick sequences. So in this film, it's the train to Palm Beach where Sherry hustles her way onto a train. She can't afford a train ticket. Of course, she's broke by joining the Ale and Quail Club as their guest. So this group of very wealthy men who like to drink and shoot things. And you can see her face at one point in this scene when they're dancing with her. They're keeping her up all night. She has to dance with everybody. They want to come sing to her. She's trying to sleep. She can't sleep. She can never give them enough attention. Then they start shooting things. They shoot out the windows of their car. <laughs> they get disconnected from the train. Uh, anyway, only Sturgis can do these sequences. I mean, they're just incredible. But it seems to me even there, she sees that living by her looks, living by her sexuality is actually not that great. It has a cost to it, and it's not the same as living off of the devoted love of her husband. Likewise, she meets J.D. Hackensacker, who's a real straight-up guy. I mean, really a nice man who sleeps uh, in the coach section of the train, because that's American. Very good man, very much in love with her, very, very wealthy, and it's not enough. She loves her husband, and it turns out that being with him is more important to her than the money. Likewise, Tom, it seems to me, he wants his wife to be this self-contained possession that stays in the New York apartment and never leaves without him as his accessory. He's missing out on a partnership that's possible where she uses her charm to help him with his business. He can't accept that at the beginning of the film, but at the end, he finally accepts it. He accepts that this is the condition of their marriage, that his wife be out in public with all of her charm, and that this will help him and will be the condition for his own success. So it's quite lovely. Of course, the tension is not quite as clear as it could be, because at the end, everyone gets both love and money. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, I think in the middle, when these things are pushing at each other in attention, you see something profound that Sturgis is always interested in. That sense of what it's like to be in love without money, or that sense of what it's like to be rich and to be unable to connect because everyone's after your money. So he's always wrestling with these questions. And I think it's always worth thinking about how he's coming at the story from different angles. Yeah, I think you're right. There are liberties taken with our sense of propriety, but there is a moral core to the story. It's, as you suggest, about whether people who fall in love can learn the lessons they need to learn about each other and make a success of it. They have to be humbled in a certain way by necessity, which the comic poet provides. <laughs> That's what it takes to teach these people not to be so high and mighty in their very different ways. She pretends to be all wit and no morality. He pretends to be the most correct man in the world. Mm. Neither of them, so long as they can have an argument with each other, will have to face his own weaknesses. Because in an argument, you have to take your own side. And at the same time, if the argument is in a marriage, you can simply take for granted that yeah, your other half will have to put up with you. That leads us to this problem five years in. They're not happily ever after. And indeed, she threatens divorce and just runs away from him to find success. And it makes sense that the woman leads the comedy because she is concerned with happiness in a way he is not. Right. He takes for granted that she makes him happy and she'll just be there. Right. And, and it doesn't occur to him that strictures that he might impose on himself, since he's a very distracted guy, it will come easy, would not work so well imposed on her. And he is not aware of the extent to which he loves beauty. Not just because his own plans of transforming America's airports are fantasies, they're in the element of the beautiful images, but also because he married this woman, as she points out in the beginning, she is not a cook, she is not a seamstress, she does not have the homely arts that one learns are so useful. 
And however we may judge her qualities, that's the situation. Right. And he won't face it. That, as you said, he is asking her essentially to stay in a cage that isn't even gilded or even a secure cage at that. <laughs> right. What is she supposed to do? Right. And of course, why does he love her? He falls in love with her because of who she is. If he wanted a practical woman who could economize, that's not the woman that he loved or the woman that he married. And I think something similar goes for her. She falls in love with this dreamer, this brilliant person who's full of imagination. And that ought to be a sign to her that the high lifestyle is not actually all that she cares about. So it's a very touching portrayal of what it might be like to be genuinely, deeply in love with someone and married to them for a number of years, but yet still be trying to hang on to some image of your life, whether it's of happiness, as you say in her case, which I think is right, or whether it's having everything just your own way, just right, which seems more like his outlook. Anyway, it's very interesting. Yeah, they're enacting in this comic, farcical way, the American drama. The number of American men who have some fantasy or another of a tycoon character is large. <laughs> and of course, how many American girls want to be princesses? Just ask me. <laughs> These are things everybody shares in. That's part of what makes the Sturgis comedies so persuasive and so interesting eight years later, too. What was really only a problem for a few people... There was a Howard Hughes kind of adventurous visionary who was marrying very attractive ladies. And there are a few rich people who have these kinds of worries. And there are some astonishingly beautiful women who seem to go through life walking on people's upturned heads. But it's not everybody's problem. Just like divorce isn't everybody's <laughs> problem. But it would become in time in the incredibly rich, somewhat farcical characters they meet down in Florida... We see images of these same protagonists. The rich oil man, she, well, falls in love with his money, let's say. He falls in love <laughs> with her. Hackensacker is a standard oil Rockefeller tycoon. That's sort of the tycoon that Tom imagines himself as being, at least if he gets his success. Indeed, his vision is every American city will have one of these things. It's not enough for him to make something that is visionary. He would want to transform the world as indeed Standard Oil transformed the world. In America, you get this power of imagination, this visionary stuff that one small thing or indeed one big thing could affect everybody. It's not just going to be a problem for some people or an advantage for some people. It could be national or indeed global in importance. And of course, that's also the character of cinema. What a few people amuse themselves with in Hollywood or what they do to make ends meet could indeed affect hundreds of millions of Americans or more people throughout the world. So there is a certain kinship between our protagonist, Joe McRae, and this hackensacker millionaire and his ditzy heiress, multiply married and divorced sister, who is like Claudette Colbert, who, like so many women, wants glamour. She would like to live the champagne life, and both of them get a chance to see what they would be like were they to have their dreams. Right. This is necessary for their education. To say that they have to return to their love of each other, they have to see what it would be like to fall in love with these other people. And they can't help but be very, very displeased with who they would turn out being if this guy really was forced to be all serious about his job since he ignores his wife, then he would not, in a way, have self-respect. 
there's something in his love of his beautiful wife that we see in his adventure, in his willingness to be made a fool of, and there's a kind of nobility in that. Right. Of course, every man should fight for his wife. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it's also something special in him because his wife is special. She does something for him because not everybody is incredibly beautiful and witty and elegant and Claudette Colbert. It brings something out of his soul that we do not see in Rudy Valli, who plays a remarkable comic role, but is a contemptible character. Now, ridiculous, as Aristotle would say, is a species of the contemptible bereft of danger. He is not a bad man in any way. And that's another shocking thing that Sturgis does. The millionaire oilman is not a bad guy. It's not something that we should be hating. You should understand that really he's just like the rest of us. And all that money is not enough to make him special. Americans are not king and servant. Everybody's middle class from the penniless to the multimillionaire. See, I suppose I wonder whether you have a harsher view of Hackensacker than I had, and maybe I just need to think about it more. But I think I actually thought of him as being something like the perfect person, except he has no one to love, right? And his money is a massive obstacle. He's constantly being approached by women who would be only interested in his money, and he wants something different. He wants a more authentic mode of marriage. But he's very decent, kind, humble generous. There's nothing wrong with him, it seems to me. So I'm a little surprised to hear you say that. But I do think that it's... Every time he makes an extravagant gesture, he counts all the dollars and I guess cents. this is what I was trying to think about. But he doesn't add up the numbers, right? He just puts them in the columns. And then he sort of smiles and shrugs. And But think about the scene. He buys her a wardrobe, but he doesn't enjoy her beauty as much as he does all this money counting. Ah, interesting. Interesting. He has all these beauties and pleasures at his disposal that normal people don't or don't have much of, but he doesn't really enjoy them. And there is something grand in this woman that she can enjoy luxuries. That's something he's I... utterly lacking, which is why he's so charmed by her. And, you know, that's the symbol when they meet. A couple of times she steps on his head and on his glasses specifically. <laughs> She has to smash his glasses to attract his attention. That's what it takes for this man to become aware of love. So that, I think I'm understanding a bit better. So he's a sort of boring person. Yeah. So Tom, who whatever his faults, he's an ambitious person. He, he wants to change the world. He'll do anything for love. Yeah. Uh, he has some fire in him. Exactly. He is spirited. He is a romantic hero. And Hackensacker doesn't. And even, in fact, the way that he gives up Jerry is another sign of that. He's very much in love with her. But okay, fine. I'll marry your twin. As you like. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. So there is a kind of charming, maybe, but limited ordinariness and lack of imagination of perceptiveness, I suppose, is what you're getting at. He doesn't yeah. see the splendor of life's possibilities, unless they really get in his face and break his glasses a hundred times like Jerry does, <laughs> and then finally he wakes up. This is something strangely American. Like you see nowadays, multi-billionaires in their 30s who seem to have no idea of life than work, 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 right. and who dress like teenagers of the lower classes. <laughs> right. Is that image of democracy true or fake? It's hard to say. I mean, in some way, these billionaires are Democrats like everybody else. It's a middle-class nation. But in them, you suddenly see there's something wrong because if you ask the teenagers of the lower classes, they will immediately tell you they have some kind of fantastic ambition. Some beautiful flamboyant fantasy is in their hearts. Right. And they will tell you what it is. But not these people, apparently. 
And that's what seems to be so funny. And that's, I think, true what Sturgis is saying here. How can American capitalists be so lacking in imagination and in passion? Kids who want to end up being YouTube celebrities have some kind of fantasy that Kristen Sturgis could speak to. People whose aspirations are meritocratic success have nothing inside of them. Right. You can give them all the money in the world. It will not change the world in any significant way. Right. Well, the other image of wealth, I suppose, is the Ale and Quail Club, which Hackensacker's presented in a very sharp contrast, right? I mean, he's humbly sleeping in coach in a bunk when he could have his own car, which he rested in luxury. Whereas they are wild, decadent, I suppose, in a certain way. They love to drink. They love to dance. They love to sing. They love to entertain this beautiful woman. They like to break things by shooting out all the windows. But that too, I suppose, is a sort of waste of human potential, right? (laughs) um, On the one hand, it's perhaps more interesting than Hackensacker. On the other hand, it's also clearly a bit of a waste, absurd. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to think about it. Yeah, you make a very good point. And I thought you had a very good idea earlier when you said that there's the Ale and Quail Club. This is how she gets on the train and, you know, sort of in the future. But they get left behind. They're not part of the future because they're so demanding of her time. They want to wow her in every way and include her in their every pastime. You see that they're not generous in the way that they seemed to be generous when they just told her, you know, we own this car, just join us. Right. They can't even let her sleep because they lack self-control. These are old men who are controlled in a certain way by a comic portrayal of anger. They start singing, a hunting will go, but they end up shooting up the car. They're like nothing so much as mutatis mutandis, a rap video. (laughs) You see all this male-spiritedness, this tyrannic desire, and they can't help themselves because for them money means there are no consequences. Right. You can get whatever you want. So what do you want if you could fulfill all your dreams? What would they be? Get drunk and shoot stuff up. There's something very (laughs) vulgar and in their case also very rural, you know. And the Weenie King, Texas money who comes to New York and sets Tom and Jerry on their adventure separately. He's kind of that way too. He's a very nice old guy, but he made his money selling people hot dogs. He says, lay off them, you'll live long. (laughs) There's something strange. The vulgarity of America makes for these vulgar rich people who may be doing bad things to their fellow citizens on their path to the million dollars. It speaks to the lowest taste, but it creates a class of people who are sort of cynical. There's nothing in them that deserves what success they've achieved. And that's what he calls using his brains, unlike the girl who has to use her looks to get by in life. Tom, always very moralistic, is shocked, shocked that this old man is giving his wife money. But essentially, he's right that if the Weenie King had been 40 rather than 80, he might have wanted to make an adulteress of her. That is another one of these images of American tyranny. It's also the past. It's not the future. You know, it's being left behind. But I think Sturgis is serious about these things that you have to ask yourself, what would people do if they could afford it? Right. If you're in the image making business, if you're in the movie business, if you offer people that story with a happy end, you know, it's something on your mind. Like, what would people do if you gave them the money? There you see that Tom and Jerry are like the rest of us, part of the middle class democracy, but also really are protagonists or heroes or admirable. Because what they would do if they could have their hearts content is be pretty decent, loving and stick together. Yeah. That's better than wasting your money on doing nutty things or satisfying childish desires. The old men who are very rich, just like Hackensacker represented as kids. It's just that he's a well-behaved kid, whereas they are completely bratty and they don't worry about the future anymore because they're about to die. Right. I think that 
see, I, I also have a more favorable view of the weenie king. So he, I mean, and his, I think his role in the movie is quite interesting. This is another piece of American wealth, right? It's philanthropy. So he doesn't just give money to her to pay her rent. He also gives money to Tom to chase her to Palm Beach to save their marriage. He seems to be just sitting around looking for ways to spend money to make people's lives better. And that is, I think, an image of wealth that's a bit more benevolent than the other ones. I think what's interesting, if I can try to develop a little bit the point I was thinking about how Jerry comes to see her way of living in the world... In a way, the Weenie King is the perfect match for her. She charms him, he gives her the cash, and then he leaves. Whereas I think what she discovers with the Ale and Quail Club is that there are prices that you pay that are not just money. That is, money is this beautiful thing where you can sort of put it down and get some service and it's all yours. Whereas if you rely on patronage, you have to spend time with these people. It's fun for about five minutes, and then it's torture to constantly be entertaining these men. And of course, that's an image of what she would find with Hackensack, right? He's not going to somehow give her the money and disappear. He's going to be there every day for the rest of her life if she goes through with this, if she gets divorced, and if she marries him. Yeah, the Ale and Quail Club is a bit of a foreshadowing of that. The price of living by your looks is a certain kind of slavery. You belong to these men. You don't just get the money to do whatever you like with. You have to live with them and do what they want. She has, in the end, more freedom with her husband. She's given some space to be herself, even if he doesn't appreciate her in the way that he ought to, in a way that these other men can't. They're consumers in a certain way, (laughs) in a way that I think her husband is not, or at least has the possibility not to be. Yeah, I think you're right. I make a lot of the generational difference too. I think that the movie is showing uh, modern America is different because in modern America, divorce is a real problem. Right. Therefore, marriage means something different since people get the chance to choose, change their minds. They don't feel that they are bound to a choice they made. They could unchoose. There's more American freedom now and there are more fantasies among who choose and there's more money running around that you could chase after or that you could use to get what you want. Now, in a way, the Winnie King is like the people who pay for movies, whoever invests, right? You can't tell the story, tell a lot of story to tell, but without the money, there's no story because movies cost a lot of money. Preston Sturgis, as much as this beautiful woman, has to sing for his dinner. Right. You can't be a free man if you depend on the money people. That's why, you know, in the late 30s and for the first half of the 40s, Preston Sturgis was on top of the world and then he disappeared. Right. He could only make movies if people paid him. And when the money went away, he could no longer do it. Right. Yes, people should have spent more money on Preston Sturgis movies, but it was their money. And if they spent it unwisely, so what? You know, it's only in the movies that justice really works out so well. In reality, you get some justice, but not that much justice, and certainly not the perfect justice of people recognizing the worth of wise poetry and paying for it unstintingly. No, no, I think that's right. I had not seen that dimension, and in a way that's also something you see in both Sullivan's Travels and The Lady Eve. That is the picture of sort of the great American hustle, which, proud or not, continues to this day. There's tons of money out there lying around. There's very, very wealthy people. And the question is, if you're a striver like Veronica Lake in Sullivan's Travels or like Barbara Stanwyck in Lady Eve, you're trying to find a way to get access to that money. Right? And what's interesting about the Palm Beach story is that this married couple is each trying to do it in their own way. You know, He's trying to get funding for his great project. He's got dreams. He's got projects. He's got ambitions. He wants to change the world, but he doesn't have money. <laughs> 
and she wants a certain kind of lifestyle and she can't have it without money. So they've got to hustle one way or the other. They've got to somehow get access to the money. And, you know, it's a beautiful theme that is fundamental to the United States <laughs> then and now. And uh, I'm wondering now whether I've seen anything like that recently in an American film. That is that the sense of the hustle. How do you get the money out of the rich people's hands and into the hands of the people who need it, deserve it, through their talent, through their looks, whatever it is. How do you enact this great wealth transfer <laughs> from the rich to the middle class or to the striving classes? Yeah, I think that's exactly what the story is about. And Sturgis is not the only guy who thinks this way. A lot of the wonderful poets that filled up Hollywood in the 30s and 40s especially, but not exclusively, pointed out that in a certain way, justice means distribution of the rewards and the honors. And some of the honors should go to the great writers and directors of Hollywood. And some of the rewards should go to people who are unusually inventive or clever, or some of them just beautiful and graceful and charming, because these two are parts of life that are very important to us even if we couldn't put a dollar value to it. Right. Not everything has to be productivity or utilitarianism. And you could never leave it at saying that who has the money deserves it because a lot of people with money are unhappy. Right. So any community, in fact, will face this problem. If your elites are unhappy, they will eventually destroy themselves and the regime. But they don't know how to make themselves happy because what they're good at in America is making money. Right. Does that make them very good at spending money? Not really. No. And so you need a complement. And just like, you know, rich people have gurus and those sorts of people <laughs> trying to hustle the money out of them, you know, you could have a better solution to that. You could have something that actually favors the people to a certain extent. The Sturgis solution that you should have a new kind of airport is a comic impossibility, <laughs> this comical fantasy that you can live in the skies. <laughs> but he thinks he's a scientist, an engineer, right. but he's head in the clouds. But also is very seriously suggesting that for moneyed people not to become too mean or petty, they would have to consider what they could do for the people. Right. What transformational visionary things are big enough that you want to put your name to, but they're also good for people so that they will actually be grateful. Having that gratitude, they can have a relationship with the American people that otherwise is not possible. Right. You should be in some way related to the American people. And if you've got a lot of money, this is the way you should do it. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. One thought is about the airport, which I think just kind of dawned on me how hilarious a uh, feature of the film it is. Because it's, in a way, the picture of a boondoggle, right? It's, I've got an idea. What if airplanes just didn't come down? <laughs> as if the whole point of airplanes weren't to take you from where you live on the ground to another place on the ground. <laughs> so it's, and this missing intermediary step, you know, which is sort of sitting there glaring of how do you get from the airport to the ground and from the ground to the airport? can think of it as being an image for how these Americans think about wealth, right? You, you're somehow up there in the sky. When you're up there, you don't have any way of connecting with real human goods. It's very hard for you to love or find love, as both Hackensacker and his sister show. It's hard for you to find a meaningful way to live your life. On the other hand, when you're down below, underneath the rich people, all you can see is how far off it is and how much you want to get there. It's a funny image that way. The other thought I have is what you're saying about the sort of drama of wealth and poverty in the 30s and 40s in film. It makes me think about how different Sturges's treatment of this difficulty is from someone like Frank Capra, who always has this significant tragic dimension 
there's this world of money that's kind of machine that chews up people's lives. There are these greedy people who care nothing for anyone. And the task is to maintain your integrity and your goodness and to be just in the midst of this world which has no concern for justice. And in Sturges, in some ways, the same world, but it looks very different. It's handled much more lightly. The rich people are ridiculous rather than evil. The strivers are less worried about their integrity, right? They, as long as they can get ahead. <laughs> and yeah. it's, in a way, a simpler vision, and in another way, a bit more human. That is, it's how a more or less ordinary person, not an especially good person, not an especially virtuous person, how do they navigate this world of insane wealth and insane poverty? Yeah, you set up a wonderful contrast. You could say broadly that Capra seems to think that the point is that the virtue of the ordinary Americans must be exalted by every man heroes because the danger in America is moral corruption. Right. But from the point of view of Sturgis, the problem is not with the people, it's with the elite and the ones who aspire, strivers, hustlers among the elites. And the problem is not moral corruption, but intellectual corruption. Right. Especially this Joel McRae protagonist in the two movies we've talked about and Hank Fonda in The Lady Eve does the same kind of role. They're very square, very moral people, but they're not that bright. They need education by smarter women who are less moral, but, you know, charm goes a long way to compensate some of this. And the truth is that life isn't all morality. Sometimes you need to think about the problem, not to have good intentions about the problem. Right. You need to respect more human wisdom and thinking about things and to be less idealistic. I think that's why Sturgis has more interest in elites and is more easygoing about bending the rules here and there. And Capra is more tragic and he inclines to show protagonists who embody American virtue. The protagonists in the Sturgis movies don't do that. They are not ultimately every man. Every woman will not be this kind of creature of delight like Claudette Colbert. Everyone can admire and in a certain way learn. Right? There is a kind of realism to Sturgis. That is to say that in reality, unlike in a Capra movie, sometimes you might want to bend the rules a little. Right. You might not be perfectly uh, legitimate in every way. This interest in intelligence, cleverness rather than morality is not unrealistic. And I think that's why people consented, as it were, to the stories that Sturgis had to tell almost as much as to Capra's. Capra shows us as we would like to be seen by other people, as we want to believe that we are, because in an uncertain America, our integrity might be the only thing we have. Right. Preston Sturgis makes us seem more brilliant, more bubbly, more interesting, because suggests that maybe in a pinch we could make do, maybe we could figure it out, use our wits rather than idealistic speeches. And I think between them, they cover a lot of ground and they show you the ideas we have. One of them is to be more populist and moralistic. One of them is to be less moralistic, but more on the side of competence or cleverness, on figuring things out somehow and fixing things. Well, I also wonder about the picture of happiness for each filmmaker, where I think in Sturges, we know you have these lovely relationships. They're very beautiful, touching, romantic relationships. They're sincere, they're heartfelt, they're passionate, they're loving, also playful, also have a lightness to them and a joy to them. These are somehow the best things Sturges knows. You know, there's other things that matter. There's making movies like Sullivan, you know, building airports. But in the end, the highest thing in human life is this type of tender, playful connection with another human being for as long as it lasts. And yeah, in Capra, it's somehow loftier, but also maybe a bit less accessible. Well, I don't know, actually. They're both pretty inaccessible. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well-being or happiness, human flourishing is being good. You know, it's doing the right thing. It's loving your neighbor. It's prevailing in the face of adversity. It's fighting evil and struggling for good. And that is loftier. But yeah, now I feel like I'm caught between the two of them and they both seem like they've got some piece of truth. I don't know quite how to untangle it. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. In Capra's movies, you see that sometimes you have to make sacrifices. Sometimes there's suffering and something about human relationships, about family especially, but also sometimes standing up for yourself or for other Americans. Right. This has to ennoble that suffering. It has to justify that suffering in as much as possible. In Sturgis, there isn't really much suffering. And that does seem to be because his hopes are not as exalted. Right. He makes fun of these men who have moral visions. <laughs> From Preston Sturgis' point of view, it's not the fall of man, it's the pratfall of man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Right. It's Sturgis who gets the comic overstatement of the virtuous man, right? Which is Sullivan trying to save the poor of America by making these grandiose films about labor and capital, right? He sees the folly in that. That, in a way, might be thought of as a failing, because it is an important part of being a human being, I think, to recognize the costs that a wealth-driven society like American society imposes on people. To really recognize that, to look it in the eye, and to find some way of acknowledging it or living in the truth of it. I think that's an important human impulse, and I think it's one of the reasons why I mean, these are my two favorite filmmakers, so it's, I guess I don't have to choose. <laughs> but it's one of the reasons why I love Capra is because he's so in tune with that human urge. But Sturgis has this wild, playful perspective. Anything can go in and out of it. Any human difficulty from divorce to poverty to foolishness to not being able to make a living, it all kind of turns into this sort of dance of entertainment. And it's very edifying. I'm not sure if I quite understand why it's edifying, but I think it is. Yeah. Sturgis doesn't want really to reform anybody. <laughs> Capra is a reformer. He thinks Americans need to be reminded that there's dignity in Americans, but not if you don't scream about it, make a fuss about it, put something on the line, stand up for somebody else. He's very much aware of how frail Americans are. If you're not very loud, you're going to get steamrolled. And so you do need these protagonists who are incredibly melodramatic. They're every man, but Mr. Smith or Mr. Deeds or any of these protagonists, they're not bright people. They're not like the women in Preston Sturgis comedies who are incredibly intelligent ladies, right. but they're not that moral. Right. And so you see different styles of comedy. Men lead in the movies of Capra because there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. Right. You might be destroyed. You might have to con contemplate suicide like George Bailey or John Doe in Meet John Doe or what have you. So this could get really, really bad. You shouldn't put a woman through that. Now, people's attitudes might change about men and women, but anybody can see with our own deaths of despair that when it comes to that, we're really willing to die for it. It's going to be men. So Frank Capra is just being realistic here, right. not old-fashioned. Right, right. Sturgis is not that way. He prefers the women because the women are not as moralistic and in being more self-interested. Yeah. Jerry in the Palmy story, like Jean in The Lady Eve, she wants a good life for herself. Just like the girl in Sullivan's Travels, she wants a marriage that's happy and loving with Sullivan. She's not trying to save America. That's something that I think Sturgis gets right, that people are not sufficiently able to make judgments in their own case, live their own lives. I'm not sure, you know, what can you do with this, but anybody who is interested in seeing how America works could see that everybody used to be married, and now a majority or nearly a majority of the young aren't married. 
Right. And it happened in one lifetime. Right. So you can't take for granted that life will smack people upside the head and they'll say, look, but I got to live my own life. I mean, right. of course, you should do something for your country and for your fellow Americans, but you should not neglect that you're a human being you're supposed to live a life. Yes. But people don't know how to do that. Yes. I'm just struck when thinking about Sturgis's women, they, at least Eve and Jerry, neither of them are quite as ruthless as they'd like to be, right? They both want to be utterly money-driven social climbers, but it turns out that they have a heart for these men. So Jerry, on the one hand, she's pretending that she's really, you know, fighting for herself and she's going to the lifestyle she wants. She's thinking the whole time about how to get Tom his money, you know, so he can have his dream. She's sort of caught by surprise by the fact that she really wants this for someone else. She's really doing something sacrificial. And uh, anyway, it's very charming. They're very, very rich characters. And yeah, it's a pleasure to think about them. I think when we finish our Sturges Maybe we should look at It Happened One Night, right? Which is the Capra most like Sturges and the least lofty in the sense of the ones we've been talking about. I wonder how that film would look after a walk through the great Sturges films. Yeah, I think you're right. That's Capra's most beautiful, well, maybe not the most beautiful movie, certainly the wittiest. Right. And it shows that he was not blind to these things, just like you can credit Capra and nobody else with inventing the Claudette Colbert romantic character. Right. This witty, very fast on her feet woman, very leggy woman, <laughs> who makes use of those legs and brings them up in conversation. So, you know, very confident woman and none too prim. So Capra is no slouch when it comes to romantic comedy or wit. It just wasn't the thing he loved most. With Sturgis, this is it. Yeah, that's right. It's not just that he married every chance he got, but uh, he also made romantic comedies every chance he got. <laughs> that's right. This was what he thought he could contribute. And I think people could learn to look at these characters, this notion that a lot of American men are very abstracted and they identify themselves with their work and they do not take the women in their life seriously enough. Right. So something would have to be done about that. Right. It's also the case, as you pointed out, there's a lot of intelligent women in America who want to be ruthless because they feel that society has been unjust to them. Right. Now, I'm not a liberal and I'm not a feminist, but I don't have any difficulty imagining what would happen to an intelligent young woman who has ambition, who takes her dissatisfactions or unhappiness out on society. Right. And because she does not have a happy marriage, she does not have a love she can rely on to give her unstinting evidence of the goodness of being human. She might, in fact, turn into a harpy. Right. You know, the sense in which Sturgis's stories are national stories, that the Palm Beach story is an event everybody should pay attention to, not just the funny hijinks of right. these two Tom and Jerry guys. Right. I think that's what he means, that you should not underestimate what American strivers are going to amount to. Right. It's nice to be moral, but what you should actually be worried in a regime is about the elites and the people who want to replace them. Right. Because if you get that wrong, the consequences will be catastrophic for society. And I think that that's what happened, really. That Americans did not show the adequate respect they should have, not just to Preston Sturgis, but to the kinds of women he pointed to. No, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it is funny for, uh, you know, if you think about the hold that the idea of the 20th century as being this amazing century of progress the women characters in these older films are, in general, <laughs> richer, more real, more brilliant, more courageous than many in more recent films when they're trying very hard to, uh, you know, it's like, let's make a film about how strong women are. And it, it, it frankly has an undermining effect. I think about someone like Catherine Hepburn, right, also for these, uh, these amazing characters, people who had minds of their own and did as they pleased. And it would be sad if we lost that vision of American womanhood, I think. 
Uh, it's profound. It's beautiful. It's unusual, I think, in many contexts, many countries. Uh, anyway, uh, it's wonderful talking about these movies with you. So thank you for pestering me continually about it. Um, it's a joy to talk about these things. All sorts of things come up that I, I did not expect to be talking Frank Capra today, but it was such a pleasure. Ah, yes, very much. And I hope our audience will also feel that there's so much in these stories to look at, to notice, and to see that, you know, it's just what America is like. There's a lot of art and a lot of care, just hard work put into making these movies. But the purpose of them is, you know, in a way to be understood as a gift. It's an act of grace. It's just trying to show you America could possibly work out, that our dramas make sense in a way, and we could even laugh at them. Nowadays, especially if somebody can prove that he's not just wishy-washy, he's not just Pollyannish. He is as witty and uh, realistic or even crude as you need to be. But he's also telling you it could work out for you. It That's could work right. out for That's human right. beings who concern themselves with themselves in a reasonably intelligent way. You can get through your accidents, you can get through your drama and come to a happy end. But you need to learn these lessons, like these characters have to learn lessons about how to take each other more seriously and be less self-important in the process. Right. It's a lesson of moderation, yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. And facing up to who you really are and what you really care about, that's a classic theme in a lot of art, right? It's self-knowledge. Yes. The breaking of this fantasy about who you are against who you really are and what, you, what really matters to you. Uh, yeah. That, I think, is exactly the right note to end on. What these stories have to offer is self-knowledge. They're not going to offer you the institutional design needed to <laughs> save the country or the world or whatever. Although that airport, what do you think about it? When... <laughs> anyway, thanks so much, Titus. It's been a pleasure. It was wonderful, Zina. And I can't close without telling people that you are not just a friend who does conversations with me. You are a successful blockbuster writer in the philosophy world. We have to tell people, go buy the Zina Hits book, Lost in Thought. Tell us, Zina, brag, be like Claudette Colbert for a minute and tell <laughs> us about your successes. Well, I am in my normal life. My mission is to promote learning for its own sake. I have this book, which just came out in the late spring, uh, and it's doing quite well. I'm happy to say I get wonderful notes about it almost every day from readers all over the country and all over the world. And I tell stories in it about people who uh, live an intellectual life of one kind or other. And I, I tell a mix of Frank Capra type stories of people with integrity who stand their ground against forces that are beyond their control, uh, forces of evil. And I also tell stories that I think are a bit lighter people who just fall in love with some piece of learning and find uh, happiness and meaning and entertainment and joy in these things. So, anyway. I'm proud of the book, and I hope that you'll buy it and read it like Titus is telling you to do. There, folks, it's Zina Hitz, Lost in Thought. Everybody has some time to be lost in thought in America. That's the middle-class nation. We're all stuck with work, but we're also stuck with leisure and therefore with ourselves. And therefore, we need some self-knowledge that comes from stories and comes from the intellectual life or the reflection on our drama, on ourselves, on our nature. Go get that book and enjoy yourselves reading it and tell other people to do likewise. Well, Zina, there are some more searches, there'll be more Capra movies. I'm very glad that we've got to do this. It's already our third podcast and let's hope for many more when and as the spirit lists. Well said. All the best. Thanks. Thanks.